sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics, guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney, Jay Carson. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm I'm good. I understand you you are having you have you're having a little bit of a vaccine hangover, uh, which which I had last week. So yeah, yeah. Look, congratulations! Hell yeah, I, I got my first shot. So yeah, uh, a little bit, but we are you know going forward, and I'm sure I will be. I'm sure I will be fine. I mean, conversation with you is always invigorating. How could it not make me feel better? Yes. Right there, you go. So uh, before we do get started, I want to thank our newest Patreon supporters: Ben, David, Jonathan, Regan, and Frank. And also one of our Venmo uh, supporters, Eric, who, along with his support, wrote, Great show. I love the debates, even when the Clarence Thomas takes are too deferential. And, of course, that's that's in reference to me. I, wow, I, you, I, yeah. Yeah, I had something good to say about Clarence Thomas. You know, I can find uh, good in almost anyone occasionally. But, uh, yeah. So, anyway, thank you all so much. And, you know, if you've got that latest COVID stimulus payment, you're looking for a good cause to put some of it toward, hey, I don't know. Are we a good cause? I'd like to think we are. But anyway, we, we do appreciate it. And of course, as a supporter, you get that second full length episode every week, ad free versions of all our shows and other stuff at different levels to check it all out. Just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And as always, if finances are an issue, but you would like the extra bonus show, just let me know. Mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you set up. All right. So, uh, Jay, with that, I will kind of turn things over to you. Yeah. So our, our first story, our first topic today is uh, the border and what's happening there. Uh, the U.S. is on pace uh, to have the uh, largest number of migrants crossing illegally uh, in two decades. Uh, that's from uh, Secretary Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who toured uh, the southwest border last week. Um, there have been calls uh, from Republicans saying this is a crisis. Uh, P- President Biden has studiously avoided the use of the word crisis. Uh, and Secretary uh, Mayorkas' uh, statement said the situation at the southern border is difficult. Um, ju- I mean, to put this in perspective, uh, the number of children uh, crossing illegally uh, has risen from 63% uh, over over last year, uh, now stands at uh, 9,297 in just last, last month. Um, the, uh, uh currently there are, uh, approximately 14,000, uh, unaccompanied minors who are being held in, uh, border, uh, uh facilities. Um, this has raised calls from Republicans that, that, uh, hypocrisy when, uh, uh vice president, uh, then Senator, uh, Kamala Harris called this, uh, crimes against humanity. Um, uh, but now the uh, uh, we're in this this same situation. Um, so so Mike, I mean, I, I I'm I'm never good at doing the real the, the summary stories. I just like to, to jump in and say, hey, what what's going on next? Because I I would like your thoughts on the first first piece of this is, do you think we have a crisis at the border? Can we call this a crisis? I I mean, sure. I I think the word I think the word crisis fits, and I understand why the administration would want to avoid using that term but uh, you know it's easy to play these word games it's it certainly is we can all agree it's a difficult situation we can all agree it's not what anyone i don't think 
wants. And so crisis is one of those, you know, uh, trigger words, I guess you could say. And certainly Republicans want to call it a crisis, a crisis of Biden's own making because of his sweeping left wing, left wing amnesty plan, as Mitch McConnell puts it. So, so, you know, I think if we dial back the rhetoric a little bit, though, there was an interesting uh, an interesting comment, I thought, from Brit Hume, of all people, on Twitter. He wrote, so the White House says stay put, but if you don't and Border Patrol apprehends you, you'll be housed, clothed, fed, and released if you're under 18. And by the way, we're laying the groundwork for providing legal status and a path to citizenship. And I thought, you know, that really sums it up, uh, yeah. to me at least. And But th- then the question is, well, how do we interpret this? I mean, I actually think that that's the right message. I believe that if Border Patrol apprehends you, you should be housed, clothed, fed, and released if you're under 18. And I also believe that we should be laying the groundwork for providing legal status and a path to citizenship. So, yeah, and I think in a sense, the Biden administration is being disingenuous when they say, well, we didn't expect people to come because we told them not to come. But of course, that message is going to resonate with folks, especially in the wake of, you know, the natural disasters in Guatemala and Honduras. And so this was to be expected. And to me, it's a crisis because we just don't have the infrastructure in place to deal with this sort of thing. And so I see it as a short term crisis if we have the political will to build up the infrastructure to, to deal with this sort of situation. What kind of what kind of infrastructure were you talking about? I mean, I, I think there were certainly some people. Um, I can think of one in particular who would say the the best you know defense against this to prevent the crisis, uh, to prevent the idea that listen, if you come here and you are arrested, uh, well then you've you've sort of already won. Uh, would be perhaps some sort of physical barrier, um, a big beautiful one. Um, what I mean to the extent if 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 our regulatory system is such that if you're arrested, you're closed, fed, uh, housed, and put on the path of citizenship, um, what what infrastructure is there to prevent illegal immigration? Well, first off, I think it's not if you're arrested, you're provided a path to citizenship, but anyone, I think, who is apprehended by authorities should be housed, clothed, fed, and treated in a decent manner. And some of that isn't happening, right, because we just don't have the capacity. But yeah, that's going to create more people, you know, coming more often, right, more people because they're saying, well, right. you know, it, it's not going to be we have better facilities. Experience. I mean, uh, sure. there's going to be, yeah. And so I think the answer isn't making it, you know, making an example of people and treating them horribly so they won't come. I, I think we should have more immigration to this country and we should we we I believe we have the capability and the capacity in this country to take in far more immigrants than we currently do and but the problem is is we don't have the physical infrastructure and the resources to deal with that sort of thing and so what I what I would put the money toward is not toward a big beautiful wall or anything like that but actually having the people there having the facilities there so that when there are these surges because of natural disasters because of other things we're in a position to deal with this and and deal with people humanely and in a in a welcoming way and as far as I'm concerned as long as you know people want to come in and they don't have a criminal record I I don't have a problem with them coming in Okay. Well, now, so, and, and we've talked about this on over the, you know, the five years we've done this show a bunch of times. And I'm, 
I'm one of the, I am a Reaganite uh, in that uh, I, I very much uh, believe immigrants are, are uh, fantastic uh, because as, as the phrase Reagan used, they're Americans by choice. Yeah. Um, and I have, I'm a big proponent of uh, expanded legal immigration. Um, but I guess, you know, you said, you mentioned the, okay, well, if we can just make sure everyone doesn't have a criminal record, how exactly, I mean, you can't do that if people are coming over illegally. The people with a criminal record um, are are going to, are not going to follow the legal process uh, and unless there's some way to, to stop it. And that's, I guess that's my, that's the bone I would pick with you on more um, resources is is how do you weed out those bad apples? Uh, because if you don't have a system that you can sort the bad apples from the, the good ones. Um, I agree, but a, a wall isn't a system. A wall is a, no, no, no. Yeah. And so I, I don't think we I'm, necessarily... so I'm saying like, what system would you propose though? I mean, if, well, I mean, I, and we, we already have, you know, uh, we already have sort of a ad hoc system that's not really designed to deal with this sort of flow of people. So I think it's just a matter of, of scaling up what we already have. Okay. So I guess, you know, my other, the other thing that occurred to me is we were uh, prepping this and, and this is again, something you and I have talked a lot about, um, is, you know, the way, the way it works, uh, you can claim, you can seek, um, uh, essentially asylum, right? Uh, you can cross the border legally and claim that you are seeking asylum. And, uh, the U S code recognizes a number of reasons for which you can seek asylum uh, it's, you know, political, religious persecution, um, uh, are, are sort of the big ones. Um, the vast majority of asylum cases are denied. Um, yet if someone comes here and then says, okay, uh, I'm seeking asylum, they're entitled, uh, to, you know, due process, uh, a hearing, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's scheduled and it could be years, years down the road. Um, and maybe they show up, maybe they don't. And I guess, again, how do you, how well, do you I mean, the data, the data shows that most people do show up. There's a, there is a significant minority of people that do not show up, but the vast majority of people do show up for those hearings. And I think part of the problem is that our immigration system isn't resourced to the point where these hearings can happen quickly to deal with the to deal with the number of people wanting to come in and making asylum claims. So again, I think that if we devote more resources to this, a lot of these problems actually end up being greatly minimized because right now it can be years and that's the problem. It shouldn't be right. years, but we don't have the system in place. Right. We and, haven't and, devoted and look, the resources. There's a good argument there. You say, look, there just aren't enough uh, uh, immigration judges exactly uh to handle these cases and to some extent that's that's true um and i believe the trump administration actually increased the number of immigration yeah. judges and i think that's a good thing i think there's still more work to do certainly in that area but so then i i come back to the other issue that you know if you want to say uh, hold biden accountable for this uh, one of Biden's uh, first steps uh, in office was to undo Trump's remain in Mexico policy, which basically said, listen, if you're going to seek asylum, uh, you have to you know, apply from Mexico, that side of the border, uh, and then wait and, and or, or, or other even other kind of entry. Um, 
and have those those claims decided later. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on the Remain in Mexico policy? I think if conditions in Mexico were, uh, were, were adequate for the most part, I would have less of a problem with it. But from, from many things that I've heard about what those conditions are for people who are you know, uh, under that program, that's a, it's a humanitarian issue. And so uh, to me, the, the fundamental question is, how should we be treating people who want to come into this country and who are fleeing poverty and persecution and natural disaster? And so that, that's that's the, that's the first question I ask. And so given the fact that it seems like under that remain in Mexico policy, it was a really humanitarian problem. I actually favor having I, I favor what the Biden administration did, even though it temporarily creates certainly an issue. And it may be a greater possibility that a certain number of people aren't going to actually show up for their uh, for their immigration hearing. Yeah, see, and this is where this is where I think you and I just uh, kind of fundamentally disagree. And there's, I mean, there's in in the law there's what's called the doctrine of attractive nuisance, um, right? That if you you put something out there that it will attract uh, people, uh, that will encourage them to 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 maybe make bad choices, uh, you can be liable. And and I think in a lot of cases that's what we've done. Um, uh, and I'm not going to lay this all on President Biden. Uh, this this goes back uh, years and years, even to the Reagan administration. Um, but there is the the attractive nuisance uh, type argument that look, once you make it here, um, you know, you there's going to be a chance for amnesty. Uh, there will be, um, you know, hearings. You'll be and and you know, look, regardless, you, your foot's in the door and you're here for a couple years. Um, so I, I think that's that's a problem, and I think I do too. The, I, I'm the saying remain, the remain in Mexico yeah. policy. I didn't, uh, you know, to me it's there. It is sort of striking that you know of all these folks who are migrating from Central America, uh, why don't they migrate to Mexico? Why don't they remain in Mexico? Um, millions of people remain in Mexico every day. Tens of millions. Um, because it's a testament to the opportunities that are available here and a testament to, I think, exactly. why no, the world exactly looks right. to the United yeah, no, States. You're exactly right. Yeah. And so I feel, again, I feel like the issue is one of, you know, how, how we deal with folks who want to come here in a humane manner. And so if I'd be fine with remaining in Mexico if the if the situation for a lot of the people who were remaining in Mexico wasn't really highly problematic and, you know, uh, fraught with all sorts of dangers, but it is. And so therefore, what's the humane thing to do? I think the humane thing to do is to let these folks come into the country. And yeah, that creates a temporary crisis until we show the political will to beef up our system and our infrastructure to the point where that's less of an issue. And I'm, that's, that's a trade-off I'm absolutely willing to make. Okay. So I, you know, I guess my, you know, where I, where I come down on this is, uh, one, I agree with you from a humanitarian perspective. Uh, we have a duty to, uh, make sure that, that people are humanely treated, are, are fed, clothed, housed, uh, when they are in, uh, our government's custody. Um, what I, what I disagree with you on maybe is whether that's, uh, that ought to be our government's primary policy, right? I mean, our first priority uh, uh, 
should be securing the border and saying, look, uh, we don't want anyone coming here without our approval because you're a sovereign country and that's that's what you sure. do. That's one of the features of sovereignty. I, I think it's not an either or, though. I think we can do both. I would totally, no. I would totally be for spending billions more on border security. Okay. Not necessarily uh, a big, beautiful wall with spikes painted black with, you know, I don't know, tarantulas or whatever it was that the last president Mo- wanted. Or but, something but, or, yeah. But, but yeah, I think that absolutely has to be part of it. And anyone who says that we don't need, you know, we don't need things like that, I think is not really fairly looking at the entire picture. So, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. So, I, you know, I guess my closing picture, and this, and this is, you know, I'm hesitant to wade into this because there is a little bit of, you know, Republican gleefulness that, that it's, it's always fun to point out hypocrisy. Um, I'm I'm also a big one in believing that a lot of times arguments of hypocrisy aren't um, they aren't arguments on the merits, right? Sometimes sometimes they are, um, but very often not. I agree, but yeah. often not. Yes, and and I, I can I think so. Here here would be here would be a a well, th- this would be for example uh, an argument, and this is, doesn't have anything to do with Mexico or anything like that. But <laughs> okay. but I'm just trying to draw a, a hypocrisy argument. If you say um uh you know rich hollywood liberals um uh promote uh you know uh, uh you know want us to limit our emissions uh to save the world from global warming yet they fly around on private jets right um so to me that that you know i'm raising hypocrisy that doesn't really uh affect the argument of whether or not emissions ought to be lowered sure um what it does do is it it indicates that Perhaps the speaker ought not to be taken that seriously because they don't believe what they're saying. Um, so, with well, that, I, 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 I don't know that that's I don't I don't know that that's actually the case. I mean, uh, this is many many people, for instance, would call themselves Christian and they fall short of the example of Christ, but that doesn't mean that their message should be uh, should be discounted because they're not even you know even uh, uh, preachers, priests, that sort of thing. We we're all sinners, and yet there's an ideal that we shoot for. So, oh, I, no, no, I, absolutely, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I think that, that that argument, as you said, is often used as a way to kind of divert from the real issue here. Right, right. So that's I, well, I'm, I'm laying I'm laying this I'm putting this preface out there so that I will not be accused of doing that. Got it. Um, but uh, that said, I, I think it is still, uh, you know, worth worth pointing out that um, the treatment that that this is receiving in the media. Uh, as a pair, as compared to the treatment that uh, the similar crisis uh, received in the media and from politicians um, is is far different. Uh, and and you know this is also a little troubling. The, the Biden administration uh, denied press access uh, to Secretary Mayorkas' uh, travels and visits to these facilities, um, and has also limited the information that uh, Border Patrol can share uh, with the press. Um, they've cited privacy and COVID-19 concerns uh, for this. Um, but, I mean, I guess, uh, are, are, do you think Democrats are being hypocritical or, or undercutting, I guess, their future arguments, right? I mean, this is, uh, again, uh, uh, Vice President Harris had said this, these were crimes against humanity uh, when they occurred during the Trump administration, referring to, to um, uh, detaining unaccompanied minors. Um, uh, AOC, you know, referred to these as, as literally concentration camps. 
Um, now I'm willing to I'm willing to say, look, that's a she's an outlier, right? Um, but you know, what what are your thoughts as far as I mean? Don't you think if this were the Trump administration and it were saying we're going to deny press access to see these facilities, uh, that the press and uh, politicians would be would be screaming bloody murder? Yeah, I'll go back to your preface, I guess, Jay. I just find this to be a completely dead end sort of argument because, of course, of course, Democrats are hypocrites when it serves their political ends. Of course, Republicans are hypocrites when it serves their political ends. This is why I I even pretty much hate the politicians that I even like, because that's the game. And so, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, fine. That's what I was shooting for. I'll I'll, I'll stipulate to that. No problem. No further questions. Yeah. But but I'll I'll also say I think that part of it, you have to look to the uh, intent the uh, what what the administration is attempting to do. And there seemed to be, at least in part in the Trump administration, a desire to make things more difficult, to make conditions less comfortable. At least there, there were administration figures who were talking about this, right, as a deterrent, whereas you're not seeing that in the Biden administration. So I think that's an important distinction, you know, to if, make. If it isn't that, I mean... Isn't that couldn't that be a valuable deterrent, though? Oh, absolutely. But then again, I don't think that that's I have I have ethical humanitarian problems. with it. Absolutely. If you treat people like crap when they try to when they try to come into the country, I bet you fewer will try to come into the country. But I think that's ethically the wrong approach. So, no, I, I, I could, you know, OK, I get and look, if that's the ethical position, that's the ethical position. So. Um, but in the real politic uh, world, I, I do think if you send the message that uh, don't come, but if you do, we'll take care of you, everything will be fine, and, and you may be in a better circumstance than you were before, um, you, you have to expect uh, that people will act on on uh, on that representation, uh, not hear the first part of the, the sentence. Um, sure. And uh, so. I- Completely agree. And this was entirely predictable. And if if the Biden administration, in fact, did not expect this, I think that's uh, that's a sign that they weren't being particularly uh, realistic or competent about this. But my sense is that they did expect it and that it's just a matter of it's just very difficult to scale up as quickly as as, as one would like. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, I. Yeah, yeah. I think we're, you know, we're mostly on the same page there. The, the second part of this is, you know, the legalization part, right? That right. Uh, the Dream and Promise Act, as it's called, which actually just passed the House on a – it was pretty much a party-line vote, right? 228 to 197, yeah. nine Republicans voted for it. And I kind of wanted to get into that a little bit too. Oh, be- I'm sorry. I didn't see No, I'm, no. That's why you shouldn't have me in charge. No, of- not at all. Not at all. Because, of course, this would provide a path to citizenship for – Slightly more than 2.5 million, I think it is, undocumented immigrants in the country right now, including dreamers, but also those who were uh, under uh, asylum, uh, sorry, humanitarian claims, asylum things, and how it it would work a little bit different for each class, right? Because the dreamers would have had to been, and as for people who just kind of a refresher, dreamers are people who were brought into this country as minors, right? And they would have to have been in the U.S. under this legislation for at least four years, have a clean criminal record or mostly clean up to two misdemeanors should be okay, have a GED, a high school diploma, or be working toward it and pass the background check. And if they met all these conditions, then they'd get conditional permanent residency for 10 years, after which they could apply to citizenship. And 
the, the difference for people who are under humanitarian protections is a little less onerous, right? They can apply for a green card if they've been in the U.S. for at least three years, and then they can apply for citizenship after five years of holding a green card. And I, to me, this sounds like a really good plan, although it seems like the prospects for passage in the Senate are pretty pretty slim. Lindsey Graham has actually been in favor of these things in the past in one of the million incarnations of Lindsey Graham said there's no pathway for anything right now. And I find that really disappointing because this seems to me to be fairly reasonable legislation. And I was kind of curious about your your view on the Dream of Promise. Oh, my, my sense. No, my sense is it is uh, uh, reasonable. I mean, I, I could I can quibble on details here or there, I suppose. But um, you and I, you and I have, have talked a lot about. Look, this is this is a, a something that Congress needs to do. It's not something that the, the you know president can do by executive order. Uh, there's a process, and there is a a, a really strong uh, moral ethical uh, argument that people who were brought here when they were kids and uh, have have lived uh, you know essentially grown up as Americans uh, ought to be uh, ought to be given a path to citizenship. Um, so no, no, uh, no real substantive uh, quibbles there. The issue again comes back to incentives. That if you don't have some sort of border security, uh, what this is is this is it's it's almost um, you know like the old the old movies of like you know the settling the Oklahoma territory where they like ring the bell and the wagon trains just you know take off. Um, I mean, I think that that sends this sort of signal of, look, get here as soon as you can, no matter how you can. Uh, and, you know, we'll make it right once you get here. And that, I think, uh, creates this this sort of, you know, these bad incentives and, and it's incentives for uh, human smugglers. Um, it's incentives for people who send their kids uh, with, uh, you know, unaccompanied. I mean, I. But just to be clear, Jay, this this legislation we're talking about is not open ended. It would only apply to uh, to folks, I believe, who uh, were were in this status as of January 20th of 2021. So it's not an open ended sort of thing. Right. I think that's an important distinction to make. Well, it, it's it it is. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if that distinction um, is apparent to the people in in uh, Honduras. I don't think it matters if it is, and I understand the argument you're making is even if even right. if I mean, it is. What, what I'm saying is is yeah the the idea is listen, um, uh, you know we're opening this up because what what I you know I think what a lot of Republicans fear is you will have a, another wave of of illegal immigration and you'll say okay well we will you know we will we will grant you amnesty or a path to citizenship. Um, in which case, uh, but only for so many people. And then a couple years down the road, there's going to be the argument that, well, look, all these other people are here too. Uh, what are we going to do about them? Well, we really ought to give them the same deal. And and again, that's going to encourage another wave. I think that's the that's the view. Unless you have a, a secure border where say where you say no, um, you can't come in uh, unless you know for these reasons. Or here is the process by which you can come in. Um, you're 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 never going to fix the system. And and you know and this this was sort of always the Republican ideas is look you you secure the border first and then you can do the. Well, see that's uh, see amnesty. that's the problem right because everyone wants the other side to go first on this thing. I think uh, you know and I I I'm sympathetic to that 
certainly. And I would say that a, a package that would make a lot more sense would be to say, hey, let's spend what the hell? Let's spend $10 billion on border security, but let's make it part of this as well and provide a path to citizenship, not just for 2.5 million, but, you know, there's the broader immigration bill that was introduced, I believe, at the end of February that would have a path to citizenship for like 11 and a half, pretty much all the people who are currently in this country illegally. And so let's make a grand bargain. I absolutely would be for something like that. But the problem is, is everyone or too many people are far, far too interested in fundraising off of this issue and making sure that the other side doesn't have anything they can get. And, and that's, you know, that to me is the tragedy of this. So let me, one more thing, because we've talked a lot about this more than what I had expected, but, but yeah, it's good stuff. Let me go back to my uh, my buddy who uh, runs a Thai restaurant um, out by my office where I go pretty frequently. Um, and he's a fascinating guy. Again, immigrated from Thailand probably 20-some years ago. Uh, he was a huge Trump supporter, uh, particularly on the issue of immigration. Uh, and he told me the story about how uh, it took him uh, nearly 10 years to get his wife uh, over from Thailand uh, here. Uh, and they, they followed the, the processes. They, they followed the rules. They did what uh, they were supposed to do. Uh, he, he was, look, he's employed. He owns his own business. He employs other people. Um, it's really good food. Um, you know, this is, this is the kind of person that, uh, you know, this is sort of the American immigrant dream, right? Um, you know, what message does it send to those people who, who have followed the rules um, when the administration says, well, OK, uh, now we're going to we're going to change the rules and allow these these other folks who didn't uh, follow the rules to essentially get what it took you years and years to get or, or even jump in line in front of you? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we have we have 11, 11 and a half or so million people who are in this country illegally right now. So that is just a fact. So what are we going to do with these people? We're just going to pretend that they don't exist. Uh, I mean, yeah, they came into this country not through the proper way. But, well, there, but I mean, look, there is deportation. So we're going to deport 11 and a half million people. No, I don't. I think that's I think that's unfeasible, unfeasible at this point. But if it were feasible, we should. People um, have been in this country maybe, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 plus years. Let's just because, you know, the important I'd, thing I'd is allow, the rules. I would, I would agree to a path to citizenship, but uh, my, my concern is that I don't think anyone who came here illegally should be able to get ahead of that path with people uh, from sure. uh, and that's, that's, people who did. That's absolutely reasonable. And I would, I would be right with you there for comprehensive immigration reform, which would greatly increase the number of, of visas, uh, greatly increase the number of green cards, make it much easier for people to become citizens who go through the process legally, and then make sure that they are in front of the line and that people who are in this country currently illegally are further back in the line but still have a path and that we we devote a lot more resources to border security. I would be absolutely pleased as heck to vote for a package like that. Okay. So there you go. Um, all right. All right. Uh, so, you know, no, go ahead. Go, I was, go ahead. I'm saying before I, I know we have to move on, but before we do move on to our next story, which I guess also involve, involves uh, uh, immigrants, minority groups, that sort of thing. Uh, we do need to take just this quick break and then we will be right back. 
Okay, Jay. So yeah. Uh, so yeah. So our next our next uh, topic uh, is the uh, Georgia spa shootings uh, that occurred on Tuesday. Uh, a twenty year twenty one year old man uh, killed eight people at uh, three different um, uh, Asian spas uh, slash massage parlor parlors. We can talk about the uh, the, the verbiage in in a bit. Um, he has admitted the killings. Uh, he has told police that he was not motivated by race, but rather by his uh, sex addiction, uh, and that uh, these uh, places were um, uh, temptations or outlets for his sex addiction that he sought to eliminate. Um, uh, FBI Christopher Ray at this point has also said it doesn't appear to be racially motivated. Uh, nonetheless, uh, this has uh, erupted into, a, a, you know, President Biden is meeting with uh, Asian American leaders um, uh, in Georgia. Now, again, that was it was part of a pre-scheduled trip. He was going to be in Georgia anyway. Um, but there's also been uh, a, a great discussion of, look, is uh, our hate crimes uh, rising against Asian Americans, uh, particularly in the age of COVID? Uh, some estimates show that uh, hate crimes against Asians have increased uh, roughly 150% over the last year or so. Um, now, again, we can get into those numbers and what they what they mean and what they don't mean in a little bit. Um, but but to me, you know, I'll start with what what troubles me right now. I mean, first of all, it troubles me that there are eight people who are murdered. Um, but but secondarily, that this is becoming a a proxy for a a race discussion, and I I don't know that the facts bear that out. Um, and and I wanted to get get your sense on this, uh, Mike, as far as you know, based on what we know, do we, do we think this is a, a racially motivated hate crime? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that uh, this is being put into a narrative that it might not be long in actually a, as a part of, right? And uh, Andrew yeah. Sullivan had an interesting uh, analysis. He said he, he looked at, he was following uh, media coverage of this in the Times and the Post. And he said, well, there was, as far as he could tell, one piece that just kind of focused on the known facts. And you mentioned that the, 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 uh, the suspect, the person who admitted to the killings actually, you know, said it wasn't racial animus or anything like that. But, uh, the post or the times ran nine different stories as part of that kind of Asian hate crime narrative, the Washington post ran 16 stories. So yeah. clearly what's happening here, right. Is this is being used as what's sometimes called and the term always makes me cringe a teachable moment. Right. Yeah, yeah. But I agree that we don't know if that really fits the narrative. And you had that spokesperson from the, the was it the sheriff's department saying that, well, this guy had a bad day. That was a yeah. horrible no, thing yeah, to that's say. That's very right? unfortunate verbiage. Right? But that, yeah, it was about, according to the, the suspect's own admission, it was about, you know, sex, sex addiction. And he was supposedly religious and trying to end this. That's and of course, two of the people killed were not Asian and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And I, I agree. And I think it's unfortunate that these issues become conflated because data does seem to suggest that there has been a spike in 
anti what's called AAPI, right? Uh, uh, Asian uh, Pacific Islander. I forget the exact acronym. In fact, the uh, President Biden had a executive memo at the end of January against uh, Asian Americans Pacific Islander intolerance. And it makes sense that that's up. I mean, we tend to see this. We, you go back historically, right? There was a rise in uh, anti-German stuff in World War One, in World War Two, and anti-Japanese, of course, right? The internment camps and that sort of thing. And, you know, and I think it's fair to say when you have, you know, a former president talking about the China virus and the Kung flu and that sort of thing, that that that's going to encourage that sort of behavior. But I do believe that that is not necessarily connected to this. It might be. We might find out later that it is. But yes, I do agree that there was a, a rush to include this as part of what seems to be a rising or a rise in anti-Asian because right. it fits. Uh, it fits the narrative. It fits a narrative that the press wants to put out there, um, regardless of whether that narrative is is really correct. Um, and again, it, it struck me this is this is kind of like something out of a Tom Wolf novel, right? Um, uh, and and um well i think so, the underlying the the underlying uh issue you know about a rise in uh, in intolerance against asians in, in an age of covid and also with i think tensions with china i think that there there is certainly data to support that but this is not necessarily a good right. fit into that right right absolutely yeah and, um, and and then there's you know oh God, so, sorry, so I guess ahead. I mean there's there's two two issues for me is first and and one is the uh, the trying to shoehorn this into the the other narrative um, because to me that's that's really troubling um, from a standpoint because I I mean don't you I, I would think that the press ought to I mean well I don't know I I don't I know see what they, I, 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 let's, let's, I'm I'm very relieved to find that you and I are on the same page on this. Um, in terms of how we we view what what this Georgia incident was was yeah. about, um, and you know, and, and it, it troubles me that so much that I've 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 read in the media about no no it really is race and uh, sort of like we we can't believe the uh, uh, you know the the killer and like uh, you know like in, in some sort of bizarre world he would go out and murder eight people uh, admit to it uh, and then say uh, you know then lie about his motives because, you know, look, look, you'd rather have people think he's a, a sex addict than racist. Um, you know, that just sort of strains credulity. Um, well, but, I mean, yes, yeah, yes and no. I think there's a lot of, of racism and racial animus that goes on that, that people carry that they're not necessarily even aware of. I'm not saying that that is the case here. But I'm saying that a better way to have framed this story would have been to say, well, you know, here was this horrific act of violence. We do not know if it was motivated by racial hatred. There's no clear indication. But the fact is, is that we do know that there we we have good evidence to believe that there has been a rise in this. And so this may be this may be able to help us turn our attention to that. And so I think that's right. a way to frame that without saying, well, clearly this was a hate crime. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but I think it's important not to rush the judgment on that. Well, I, I think we're in the same uh, position. Yeah. I'm not, not rushing to judgment. And I think, but I think you're still rushing a little bit ahead of me. Um, because I, I tend I would, to be a little bit ahead of you. I, yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I view it as sort of irresponsible, um, you know, there, I remember reading all these these stories about Asian Americans are afraid to go out. They're afraid, you know, that they're going to be targeted and all this. Um, 
you know, one of the media is is ginning this up, saying, "Listen, there were eight people who were killed, and it's a hate crime." Um, I mean, does do our do our racial tensions are they being exacerbated because of this narrative? Yeah, I see what you're um, saying. Yeah, I, so, you yeah. know, so there was another yeah. uh, study I saw. This was a couple weeks ago regarding perceptions of police violence and and um, uh, unarmed, you know, black men killed in police custody. Um, the number, Mike, if you had to guess, what would you think would be the number of, of, uh, black men, uh, unarmed, I, I want to make sure I get this right and I probably won't, but unarmed black men, uh, killed by police in the last year. Number of unarmed black men killed by Yeah, police. just to mean, yeah, just, you know. Well, I, you don't I, have the exact number, but I, I would have no way. I, I, I wouldn't know, and I would say that. I, I guess I would say, what do we mean by unarmed? And and I think that that might be a way to kind of make this artificially low. And I would say that, well, just if somebody happened to have a pocket knife, is that armed? So right away, my radar goes up with that. I'd be much more interested in finding the number of black men killed by police. But go ahead, tell me the number. Let me find. Let me find that. So no, well, but the point is. Uh, it's less the actual numbers is what the perception. No, of. and I, I think you're so, so yeah. they when they um uh, and, and I will I'm diligently searching right but now. I, I should have pulled this well, up. While you're searching, I, I will say that I agree with you that there is the possibility, and it sometimes happens that perceptions of crime and danger are exaggerated by a sensationalist media. I, there was no doubt in my mind. We see that on both the right and the left, you know, fear and outrage and, and, and anger, they sell like crazy. And so we absolutely see that. But on the other side, I would say that also, I think both sides, rightly so, try to use focusing events to focus attention on issues that are related, even if they're not a perfect fit, or even if they're not a great fit, because it's so hard to kind of get people's attention focused on something that's something that like Asian uh, intolerance against Asians. How do you how do you do that? How do you bring people's attention to that? Well, an event like this can do that, even if the event itself isn't necessarily an example of that, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So the the number uh, I've I've got for total fatal sh- police shootings, this is all races, uh, is at one thousand four in twenty twenty. Um, that is up from uh, nine hundred ninety nine fatal shootings in twenty nineteen. Um, of those uh, killed in twenty twenty, uh, now again this is on our armed unarmed. Total number uh, uh, black uh, killed in 2020, 226. So, look, that's 226 is a big number. And, and also, it's any, just the ones that the cops killed, as opposed to if they just, you sure, know. Sure, no, and there are others, yeah, there are other, yeah. And they, I expect they, it would be a lot higher if it was just, well, we shot him, but we didn't kill him. Right. Well, let me, let me put this, yeah, this just, the, mean, what I'm looking at just tracks uh, deaths. Yeah. And, you know. So. But the, we cop, can, the cops but don't no, always don't always end up uh, killing when they when they necessarily want to. I don't know, but uh, that number would be higher. Is my point? Okay, but to my point is the perceptions uh, sure. that uh, people who are or describe themselves as liberal or very liberal believe that the number of unarmed black men killed was somewhere north of ten thousand a year. 
Yeah, and and certainly Republicans, perceptions. Republicans of, had yeah. Republicans were lower, but they were were pretty much in the ballpark as to you know close to what the the actual numbers were. Um, but the farther left politically people got, the bigger their perceptions were of of that there is this, and this is the term that's been used by so many people: a war on on uh, black people by the police. Um, and, and to some extent, look that that narrative doesn't really fit the numbers, right? Again, well, I, any, no, let, any, any improper uh, killing is is wrong, but um, is it is it a a uh, you know, one, are they, are they increasing? Are they, um, is this a, a wave of violence? Uh, no, it, it doesn't appear that way. And we've, you know, I, I would disagree. Shootings are, are incredibly rare, you know, all the way around. Yeah, I, I would disagree with that. I would say you can't just look at one number. I think that the just general lived experience of, of, of black Americans dealing with police is very different from that of white Americans. Sure. And so sure. that, but, but I, I, I take your, I take your larger point, just like you could say, well, if we took a look at the percentage of Republicans who believe that there was massive vote fraud that changed millions of votes and Donald Trump was actually really elected. Well, and then compare that to Democrats and the actual numbers and the, the, the facts, you know? Yeah. Because, because they're in these, they're in these filter bubbles of, of outrage and partisan reinforcement that, that twist the facts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So no, that we are a hundred percent agreed on that. The difference, the distinction that I see though is on the one hand, the media is is all 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 too willing, and and you know I shouldn't say gratefully so, but uh, to push back on the narrative, the narrative and say no, look, this is this is certainly not the case. There's no evidence that that there's this massive vote fraud. Um, but on the other topic, uh, if the narrative is race, they're much more willing to say this is part of a a a you know ballooning problem, uh, police racism, structural racism. Uh, institutional racism, whatever you want to call it, um, and and I think that that exacerbates our racial tendency. And one last thing, I, I want to jump then also to we we would agree that uh, crimes against Asians have increased, and the number I found in, in looking was is roughly about 150 percent mm -hmm. uh, over the last year. Right. Um, but I, I think the the raw data is important. The the what I'm what I'm found and if you have different numbers again this is designed and tracked by the FBI um hate crimes against Asians increased from 49 in 1919 to or 2019 uh to 122 mm -hmm. last year um now that is roughly a 150% increase uh but it's also small numbers like in in LA uh the hate crimes increased from 7 to 15. So, you know, there, and there, there have been articles saying, well, look, this could also be just be part of larger, uh, you know, crime increases that we've seen in a lot of big cities, uh, in the last year, partially related to COVID. Um, you know, so I, I, well, hate crimes I, are, are I, I a think distinct there's also thing. something, I mean, something to say, look, that we ought to be is there a wave of uh, violence and uh, crimes against Asians when in a uh, big city with probably one of the biggest Asian populations in the country? Uh, you know, those crimes jump from seven to 15. Well, it's I think it would be unfair to say that that was the number. That was the number of reported hate crimes. There are plenty sure, of sure. acts that, in fact, I would say uh, probably a lot more that go unreported, you know. So and it's not just about 
actual crimes. It's about intolerance, as, you know, the, the president's uh, uh, executive memo said. So saying, you know, just the, the, the simple act of somebody saying, why don't you go back to your own country or, or something like that? You know, that is an act of intolerance and that is that should be unacceptable. And it seems like I mean, there's no great way to measure. There's no even good way to measure that. But from everything we know, that is absolutely on the rise. And, and I would argue that it was that it was almost encouraged by the previous administration. I, I guess, you know, on the intolerance, uh, <clears throat> is, is that, is that the government's business, right? I mean, how do you, how do you legislate? Well, I, I think it's you can certainly encourage people to be more tolerant. Well, yeah. Right? And I, and I, mean, I think, that, that, you know, yeah, I think so, that's a good thing to do. And you could say Trump didn't, didn't do uh, near enough on that. Well, and, he did the reverse. Let's be clear. Yeah. He did the reverse. He encouraged uh, intolerance. I would say, or repeated dog whistles and sometimes not even dog whistles, right? I mean, you know, joking about the Kung flu and the China virus and so forth. I but mean, yeah, I, don't know. I see again, you, you see those as, as being intolerant and, uh, uh, attacks on, on Asian or, or Chinese people. Uh, I think calling it the China flu is, is perfectly acceptable because look, this is, that's where one, that's where it originated. Second of all, the government of, of China, I think, bears a, a a large part of the responsibility for what the world's been through yeah. uh, over the last year. I see it uh, as dog – again, I see it as dog whistles. It, it would have been one thing if he had said – you know, if he would called it the China virus and he had – made very clear that this had nothing to do with you know, with uh, uh, Chinese Americans or people who are from China in this country. And it's the can Chinese we, can we call government. It, how about this? Can we call it the Xi virus? The Xi virus. Well, I guess that that wouldn't have Xi worked, virus. though. Yeah. That wouldn't have worked, though, for Donald Trump. I mean, and again, I don't want to make this conversation. Oh, I, I about, think it would have. Yeah. No, not at all, because that wouldn't have worked with with the audience that he was that that he was, you know, trying to that he was attracting his his base audience, that audience that feels that and we'll, we'll maybe get into this, maybe not in this show, but in the, the bonus show, this idea of these, you know, the, these white Christian males who feel like their country's being taken from them by these brown and yellow and non-American, non-Christian people. And how dare they? And we'll show them. What if he called it the red China virus? I just think it would be just the same. I mean, there's no, there's no good way to do this. There's no good way that there's no good way to do this without a certain class of people picking up on that and just deciding that if you are a Chi if you're a Chinese person or if you just look Asian, therefore you are less than because of these things that are being said. What about the Spanish flu? Yeah, and that doesn't necessarily. I don't know if I don't know if there were you know indications or if there was increased uh, uh, hate crimes or intolerance against Spanish people in 1918. I, I'm not aware of that. I don't know if you are. I'm not. I'm not. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. But I mean, do you? I guess does the does the term does the the uh, offensiveness of the term depend on whether hate crimes follow it? No, it depends uh, on the context. Or, or is the term offensive in and of itself? It depends on the context, I think, certainly. If it's being used strictly as a descriptor, then I think that's one thing. But uh, I, I certainly didn't think that the previous administration, or at least the president in particular, just used this as a simple descriptive thing. This, vi this virus that happened to emerge from China. No, I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't the story at all from that administration. There is, of course some international pushback on whether the virus did actual, actually come out of China. Um, most people tend to agree that it uh, did, uh, except, of course, for 
um, uh, the you know president of China, right? President, um, <laughs> dictator right. of China. Um, and and you know, to, to me, I, I think there's there is a good, um, uh, solid reason to. Again, this is completely you know off topic from where we started with with uh, shootings, but. Um, to to identify this as as having uh, come out of uh, China and being related to uh, China's either either failure to to contain this in the first place, China's dishonesty with the the international community about it in the second place, uh, and and perhaps even its its own negligence in creating it in the first place. So I I, I think I don't when, disagree when with we, any of we that. Subs- no, here's well, hear me out. Hear me out. When we substitute and step in with the sort of politically correct of, well, we can't say this because it might offend people, um, but we also take away our ability to criticize um, uh, what is a, 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 a monstrous uh, dictatorial government uh, that may have, you know, literally killed millions of people. Uh, 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 through its own negligence. Um, I think you're, I think you're I think entirely a- wrong about that. And I think here's why, because it's one thing to, it's one thing to criticize a government and the Chinese government, and we'll, we'll get into this in just a minute here, but the Chinese government is reprehensible for so many reasons. But I think when one does that, it's important to make a distinction between the government and the people. And that was a day. Donald Trump was not one for making fine distinctions. And he did not make that distinction. And so therefore that carried over and people looking at any one of Chinese descent as having some sort of culpability. And he had a responsibility as president of the United States to make sure that that distinction was made. And he didn't do that. One of his many, many failures as president. And, and so I think that's an important you know, that, that's an important point to bring up here. Okay. But, all right, fi- finally on this, and because, wow, we're really running out of time. I mean, do you, but but do you see any of this, this uh, spa shooting? Uh, and again, I, to me, the, the press coverage is, is, is horrific in, in what it's not saying. And, and the fact that is in some ways trying to, trying to pin this on Trump. Um do you do you see any culpability for Donald Trump uh, in these shootings? Well, no, of course not. I mean, okay, well, good. All right. I mean, I, you know, I, unless, well, it, comes out, unless, unless it comes out that the shooter said, say. well, you know, I mean, I uh, uh, that it was motivated by racial animus and there could be some link. But no, I mean, Donald Trump's not re- not, not not responsible for these shootings. Of course not. So, and you know, I, I know this is kind of a nice segue before we get into our, our, what will be our last story about actually the U.S., more specifically about the U.S. and China. We're just going to take one more quick break and we will be right back. Okay, Jay. So we are back. So yeah, our, our final story. And again, everything's kind of flowed right one, one to the other pretty, pretty seamlessly today. Yep. Um, uh, high-level talks between the Biden administration and uh, Beijing uh, veered into acrimony um, uh, recently. The, uh, there was a two-day meeting in Alaska on uh, Thursday and Friday of last week, which covered an array of issues uh, relating to uh, China's clampdown on Hong Kong, uh, repression of uh, the uh, uh, I can't say the name the Muslims in Uyghurs, Virginia, yeah, yeah, Uyghurs. Uh, a province, um, uh, and also, uh, you know, other just, you know, general trade of the others. So anyway, uh, it, what, what it looks like is, um, 
you know, the China and the Biden administration are off to a little bit of a rocky start. Um, uh, the Chinese representative said that China will unswervingly defend its national sovereignty, security, and development interests. Uh, China's development and strengthening is unstoppable. Um, but uh, so the the uh, uh, Biden administration has uh, since rallied support uh, among allies in Asia and imposed sanctions on certain senior Chinese legislators. Um, uh, that also that was part of the the issues and and again cyber attacks uh, another issue i mean we could this could be a whole story in and of itself but um i i, I mean I, I look i will give joe biden credit where credit's due uh i i think it is good uh that uh, we are taking a tough line on china i hope it continues i hope it gets tougher yeah i you know certainly the the Trump administration took a tough line on China economically. They were a lot less comfortable doing so for human rights and democracy abuse. Not, not that there's democracy in China anyway, but those sanctions, right, right. of course, were right. on the officials. Well, democracy were, abuse in Hong Kong. Yeah, exactly. And that was, was what the yeah. sanctions were about. So, you know, I think, you know, the Chinese, of course, are not going to say, yes, we are a totalitarian state, a dictatorship. And uh, what, what are they going to say? So they're going to say, well, Black Lives Matter, you guys have your own problems. And I think Secretary of State Blinken had exactly the right response saying, you know, yeah, we have our problems, but we face our problems. We are open about our problems. We don't ignore them or bury them or certainly if we do, not nearly to the extent that China does. And, uh, you know, I, I am I agree with you. I think that there should be consequences, that there should be an increased push against China on their human rights abuses uh, and democracy. But, of course, you know, that's problematic because if, if China isn't unstoppable, certainly you, you, you track China's economic growth and the U.S. economic growth. And it's, you know, I mean, they're, uh, they're the most formidable rival that the United States has ever had. Although to some extent they may be, they may be faking the numbers on that too. But, but let's, let's say, yes, it is, it is significant. Yeah, even, Probably not even, as significant as they're saying, but I mean, e even if – they are exaggerating the numbers, even if we accept that. And I, that seems reasonable to me uh, to do. It, it's pretty clear that, you know, that by probably by mid-century at the latest, you know, they will clearly be the largest economy in the world. And that's just that's just the number of, you know, that's just a factor of demographics in a way. And that that's the reality. And it's a lot more difficult to deal with, you know, with China in the 21st century than it was to deal with, uh, say, Soviet Union in the mid 20th century. It's a, it's a whole different level of, of challenge on, on a number of, you know, for a number of reasons. And so while I think that we're doing the right thing, I just think that over time, the levers that we have are fewer and fewer. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's, there's something to that. Although there's, you know, China depends a great deal on U.S. trade, and, and I, I think, again, if, if, if push comes to shove, we can take even tougher positions. Now, the problem is that there is a, a backlash in that. When we do that, that that inflicts some pain on people here at home as well, uh, uh, perhaps even significant pain. Um, but uh, something that the, the virus has has taught us, and, and a lot of companies started looking at uh, about a year or so ago, was look, what can we do to maybe diversify our supply chains and be less dependent on China? 
Um, can we move productions, you know, even uh, assuming a, a globalist world, um, can we move productions to South Korea? Uh, can we move, you know, production somewhere else in, in Asia that is not, uh, that is not China and does not deal with those, however, those issues that come with it. Um, but I don't know. There's also there, I, uh, I, I'll tell you, I, I've, uh, a friend, someone I work with who is extremely knowledgeable on China. We should really have him on the show sometime. And, um, <laughs> uh, but, but I, I think we, we do need to to have a, just sort of a national reckoning. Um, and I think we're getting there, right. That, uh, you know, the policy that, that look, I thought was a good policy 20 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, that of engaging, right. That the, the theory always was look as, as more openness, as more capitalism, as more interaction flows with, uh, uh, uh communist countries, uh, the more that communist system sort of starts to deteriorate and collapse and people will ultimately uh, choose freedom and because that's what happened in Eastern Europe. Um, but but this seems to be a, a different situation or maybe it just needs to play out longer. I, I don't know, right? Um, obviously, back in the, the 1950s, there was probably the sense that the Soviet Union was unstoppable and was on the rise and uh, Khrushchev said, uh, that, uh, he was going to bury us and, and, and so forth. Uh, and that did not come to pass. I mean, the, the system eventually collapsed under its own weight. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I guess the, the question is, is that lesson of history going to hold true for China as well? I think it's a lot um, less We sort of thought to. it was 20, 30 years ago, but it hasn't, hasn't played out that way yet. Yeah, I think it's a lot less likely to. China's in a much stronger position economically than the, you know, than the old Soviet Union ever was. And so, yeah. I mean, it's hard to envision a scenario in which that, that their system collapses. The, the tools of surveillance and control in the 21st century are so much better than they were back in the 1950s and 1960s and so forth. And so I think that, you know, that assumption that you 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 pointed out that we we had had about dealing with communist governments about dictatorships i i don't know that that assumption is true anymore and i think that's a that's potentially a tragedy for human freedom uh, and we've seen you know certainly in a lot of countries uh human freedom go down you know democracy is sort of in decline and and i think that's a troubling thing and i don't necessarily know that 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 trend reverses itself anytime soon yeah um, so yeah, this is, you know, this is, um, well, we're running a little late, but I'll, I'll just, my, my, my musing, I mean, as far as, do you, what do you see as far as the responsibility of American corporations and companies that deal with China or don't deal with China, um, in, into, to how they interact? Because I, I, I would think that, you know, it, it troubles me in that, uh, we do have some some corporations that are willing to turn very much a blind eye to some some terrible things that are happening um, there. Uh, Disney comes to mind, uh, but uh, there are certainly others. Um, is is that a way to, to to combat China to try to to build up a bigger, I guess, U.S. Uh, you know. Corporate corporate patriotism, right? Uh, uh, if we're waiting you know, for if we're know. waiting for corporate responsibility or corporate patriotism to do anything, we're going to be waiting forever. I think that's ridiculous. I think what we need to do, if if we're serious about this, is you know that corporations are are they 
They've made it clear they're responsible to their shareholders and yeah. they're going to go where the labor prices, where the cost of production are the lowest. And if that means that 13 year old kids are, are working, you know, 16 hour days, well, that's okay as long as they're not legally prevented from that. And it doesn't hurt their bottom line. So if we're serious about this, we have trade deals, we have legislation, we have restrictions that make it impossible for countries to do that. And ideally, we do that multilaterally. And, you know, one of the things I think that was one of the things I, uh, I, I think was a good thing that came out of the Trump administration was, for instance, renegotiation of NAFTA to, you know, have uh, to make fairer conditions. And so I think we need to do that on a broader level. I think we need to do that in a multinational way to stand up for the democracies of the world, to stand up against the sort of exploitation and sort of repression that happens in China. I would love to see that happen. So my my thing, and this is just a little, um, the, you know, U.S. companies have recently become so so woke as to uh how they handle uh events in the west um but the uh you know the chinese government recently uh approved a school textbook uh that uh basically says that that homosexuality is is an aberration uh it is a, a you know form of a disease um this went through their official you know court processes and censors and so forth um Obviously, if a state uh, were to do that, you would have corporate boycotts right and left. Um, yet we don't necessarily see that. Uh, uh, the, the greatest thing I, I saw was the National Review, and I forget who wrote it, but they sort of described the uh, the whole events and what the, the uh, Chinese government ruled on this uh, textbook relating to homosexuality. Uh, then the next sentence was, your move, Disney. Um, I... I I, I really think that you know if if these corporations really want to uh, express their their wokeness, their commitment to human rights, um, you know that there's there's a platform to to now do that, or or that it's it's weird that Americans don't start demanding uh, that we not do business. Uh, with this regime that's because most americans don't care about it they want their they want their everyday low prices and they don't want to think about what that what that means and what that's supporting i mean come on yeah. people there there's this there's this surface level commitment for a lot of americans to to uh you know uh, individual rights and equality and that but the, the real commitment here is to the to the almighty dollar to worship at the altar of mammon and that's 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 our that's our state religion these days, you know, and that's uh, we should be honest about that. All right. All right. Well, on that on that note, there were a lot of things we didn't get to that we will get to in our bonus show. Like, for instance, something that really caught my eye, uh, our our own state, Jay, uh, Ohio, um, suing the administration over over the covid money, actually, and this doesn't just involve Ohio. There are a bunch of Republicans in Congress and a bunch of Republican attorneys, yeah. attorney There'll generals. There'll be other states that join in. Exactly. That. And also we want to get into maybe talking about the, the culture wars and cancel culture or something. I'm looking forward to talking with you about, I don't know how much we're going to get into Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss, but we'll see. And, and also something that you and I talked about a little bit earlier this week, kind of off air about meritocracy, sort of the, the, the perils, I guess you could say, of meritocracy. Yeah. So 
All of that will be in your feed if you are a supporter midweek. And if you're not and you'd be interested in becoming a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. We'd also appreciate if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share episodes on social media, that helps us out a lot. And if you've got a, just a question, comment, want to get in touch with us for any reason, it's mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find links in our show notes. Special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.